Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 240, and I had a conversation with Carrie Bean. She's a systems engineer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory with NASA, and she is currently a helicopter integration engineer for the Mars uh, Perseverance rover, and she is also a co-deputy lead rover planner for the Curiosity Mars rover. Badass. In other words, she gets to drive the rovers around Mars. So cool, so cool. It got me thinking about that old game when we were kids, remember Red Rover, Red Rover? And and Mars is the red planet, and the rovers are the things that drive around on Mars. Did NASA get the idea for naming the the cars that drive around on Mars? I know they're not cars, but bear with me here. Uh, rovers, because of the Red Rover, Red Rover? Send your astronauts on over someday, maybe? But until then, a vehicle that can pick up a bunch of stuff and send back information. That's a bit of a long title, but you, you get what I'm saying. I am curious about that. Anyway, really fun conversation. She's into robots. She's into Star Wars. She's into Mars. And we talk about all that stuff. And I'm looking forward to you hearing all about it. Okay, I'm going to get through the usual stuff. Social media, Hey Human Podcast is on Instagram and on Facebook. And my personal social media is under Susan Ruthism, S-U-S-A-N-R-U-T-H-I-S-M, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can email me, Susan, at heyhumanpodcast.com. Are you interesting? Do you know someone that's interesting? Is there a story you think I should follow on? Uh, Send me an email. I would love to hear from you. There is a links page on heyhumanpodcast.com where you can find information about every episode my guests, what we talk about, articles, books, yada, yada, yada. So definitely check that out. Also on the Hey Human podcast website is the merch page. Yes, there is merch now. It's a store. It's safe and secure. You can get t-shirts and hats and masks and jammies for the babies and leggings and notebooks and all sorts of fun things. Great holiday gifts, perhaps. Definitely check it out. Uh, Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. My big Christmas wish from Santa and from you is to get reviews and ratings on iTunes. It really helps. It just takes a few minutes and it it pushes the show up through the algorithms, which would be awesome. So please do that if you get a chance. If you've been thinking about doing it and you've sort of been putting it off, now is the time. Definitely do that. Yay. Uh, If you want to learn more about me, you can go to SusanRuth.com. You can also sign up for the mailing list there. I send out a mailer about every quarter, so I promise you will not get inundated with emails from me. And I think that's about it. Let's get into this. Thank you for listening. Thank you for spreading the word. And uh, stay safe, be well, and here we go. Carrie Bean, welcome to Hey Human. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I learned about you through our mutual friend, Trevor, and I was very excited because not only are you an engineer, but you are a female engineer, which I hated that it has to be delineated that way, but I think it's important because there's not a lot, it's getting better, but not a lot of representation of women in the field. So exciting for me to have you on the show. 
how did you start? You were, I read a little bit about you and watched some uh, interviews and things. And I remember for myself, at least, uh, one of the best presents I got from my parents for a birthday was a microscope. It was the coolest. And they used to send me away at summer to Operation Exploration, which was awesome. So your childhood was very much like this, correct? Yeah, I was doing summer camps and, uh, you know, went to space camp a couple times. And uh, my parents sent me to what was called the Saturday morning experience, where it was sent to a local university and you would spend your weekends doing chemistry labs and biology labs and, you know, all sorts of sciencey stuff. So, yeah, I was definitely a nerd. <laughs> did you did that set you apart from other kids or did you have peers in your group that were the same way or was were you the odd person out going to do this stuff? Yeah, I was definitely kind of the odd person at the school. You know, I had a couple friends, but I mostly spent my time sitting in the library alone reading books. Yeah, you were you you came into the world as an adult already, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you know back then that that was going to be the direction you went, or for you it was just I'm a kid, this is fun, I get to blow things up and make things and build robots and stuff, or. The the eventual path was a little odd, but um, I definitely was, you know, into the science-y math stuff. So I figured it was going to be something like that. And I always grew up interested in meteorology since I grew up in Texas. You know, there's thunderstorms and tornadoes and all that sort of stuff we don't get here in, you know, Los Angeles anymore. <laughs> and so I, um, yeah, so I started out just always interested in meteorology and I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it. Um, you know, whether I wanted to be the the TV meteorologist, you know, on the, the nightly news, right? Or uh, I wanted to, you know, fly into the center of the hurricanes or be the tornado chaser, you know, there's like so much you can do. And so I kept changing my mind. And then I got to see a space shuttle launch when I was in high school. It was just so happened to be in Florida the week of the Disney World family vacation, you know, that kind of thing. And um, at that point, I was like, oh, man, you know, now I'm really interested in space. And so I didn't really know what to do there either because you can be the engineer building stuff. You can be the you know astrophysicist looking at the stars, like all this kind of stuff. And so I finally decided, yeah, I'm just going to go to school for meteorology and you know, it's science and mathy and I'll figure it out along the way. And that's when I found you can study the weather on other planets. And that's when I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. Uh, so that's really... Uh, how I ended up working for NASA was just kind of discovering that and being lucky that I got pushed into that path. You graduated within that realm of studying uh, weather on other planets. Did you have a particular planet that you called home? <laughs> yeah, so definitely a Martian all the way. <laughs> I grok that. I get it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, before we get into that stuff, I am curious, um, tell me about Space Camp, because I think that is the coolest thing ever, and I'm super jolly, so this, describe what that was like. Yeah, so I found out about Space Camp, and I was like, oh, I want to go, and so I like wrote this little essay to get like a partial scholarship to go, and my grandfather said, well, if you're going to go for one week, you might as well go for two. <laughs> so I got to go to their two-week camp. Um, and that was like between my junior and senior year of high school, I think. And uh, I just completely fell in love. Um, it was super fun. 
because you get to, you know, pretend that you're an astronaut running around and you can have all sorts of crazy things happen to you. So they had like this 24 hour mission was the the big thing where you actually get to sleep in the space shuttle and the space station instead of your little like bunk, you know, um, and I remember you can have all sorts of like medical issues that pop up. So I got uh, OCD to open and close the drawers and cabinets. And the counselors can be space ghosts in that they are acting like the zero gravity. So if you open a drawer, they come over and they start like throwing all the stuff out of it because it's floating away. Yeah. That's um, so cool. <laughs> I might have TP'd the entire inside of the space shuttle. <laughs> Oh my god, I love it. <laughs> Not many people can say that. <laughs> yep, so uh, that was definitely one of my favorite memories. And uh, it's actually funny, um, I went the following year as well, and one of the women who went to that particular session with me, we actually now work on the Mars rovers together. So that was kind of fun. Cool. All right, so you graduate from college, and do you, are you immediately in NASA and in JPL and, and such, or is that, yeah? Yeah, so uh, I got hired right into JPL right out of college. Did they, did they headhunt you, as they say, or did you, how does that work? Yeah, so while I was in college, I actually got to work on several of the NASA, NASA missions. So my advisor, um, he was like really involved in like operating cameras on the different Mars rovers. And so he brought me along to work on those. Um, so I actually got to live on Mars time with curiosity and I got to meet all the, you know, scientists and engineers. And for curiosity, I even got to like live and work at JPL for several months. And I knew at that point I was getting close to graduating. So I kind of was like, Hey, I was graduate in a few months. What kind of job would be available? Um, and of course, that was right in the middle of the giant recession a couple years ago. And so, uh, you know, they couldn't hire me. And so I started looking for other things to do. So I actually interviewed for a PhD program in Canada, since Canada wasn't having the recession that America was. And so uh, it was like the week that I was going to do the whole campus visit tour um, in Toronto that I got the call from JPL saying things have changed. When can you fly out for an interview? So that that worked out. And uh, I ended up at JPL um, exactly one year to the day from when Curiosity landed. So it's really easy to remember my work anniversary. You talk about Mars time. And I, would you explain that to the listeners what that means? Yeah, so a Mars day or Sol is about 40 minutes longer than an Earth day. So for the first three months or so of every Mars mission, we've lived on Mars time, the whole operations team, scientists, engineers, all of us. Um, that way we get like the most bang for the buck. So essentially we plan what the rover does while it's asleep on Mars so that we have, by the time it's waking up on Mars, we have a plan, we'll send it the instructions for the day, then we sleep while the rover does it wake up when it sends the data back, do it all over again. So you're basically living in a constantly changing time zone for three months. Whoa. Um, what does that do yeah. to you, to your mental acuity? So I am one of the rare people that actually like enjoys it. Um, I don't know, maybe I really am a Martian. And it just synced up with my sleep schedule, but um, I particularly enjoyed it. Um, you're kind of like locked up with several hundred of your friends and coworkers. So you can have barbecues at 5 a.m. or, you know, you get really good at finding all the 24-hour restaurants in the local area. And 
That's fun. When uh, the rover wakes up after sleep, how does it replenish itself? Is it drawing from when the sun is on it or what keeps it going? Uh, So it depends on which rover. Some of them are solar powered. And so, you know, they kind of wake up when they have enough sun in the morning. Um, But uh, Curiosity and our new rover on the way to Mars right now, Perseverance, they're both nuclear powered. So they're not really reliant upon the sun. Um, But during the day, it's warmer. So they're not drawing as much energy for, um, you know, keeping itself warm because Mars is pretty cold compared to Earth. And they're also, you know, trying to take pictures of the ground and it's hard to take pictures of the ground at night. So uh, they still kind of follow that general pattern of, you know, wake up in the morning and go to sleep in the evening kind of thing. When Perseverance gets there and it's going to do its data collection, it's it's supposed to come back. Is it one of them is coming back again, correct? So this mission is the first of our sample return mission. So none of it is coming back, but what it's doing is actually creating like a little canister and it's going to cache samples in it and leave it for the next mission to come grab it and take it back. So the rover itself is staying on Mars, but it's basically going to like have this little canister of samples that another rover will pick up and bring back at some point. How does it bring it? I thought part of the problem of going is you it's a one-way trip and that you don't want to take all the fuel to send it back. Is it because it's much lighter than, say, 100 people or something? It's not a big deal? Yeah, that's part of it. And there's also um, looking into technology to basically develop fuel from the materials available on Mars. Um, and it's also a pretty small canister, you know, all things considered. It's not this one-ton rover that we're sending, right? It's like a little small canister. Um, so it'll be easier to send back. You won't need as much fuel, but, um, that return mission is currently in development. So I'm sure they're looking into, you know, what's going to be the best, uh, trade of, do we bring the fuel with us? Do we make it there? Some combo. Yeah. Yeah. When you went to work, uh, you drive rovers, correct? Yes. Yeah. Whoa. I mean, it's, I mean, it's <laughs> can you parallel park? <laughs> when you drive, what was that experience like when you first began that part of your mission, if you will? I imagine there's all sorts of things going on. Trepidation, excitement, terror. Yeah. Multi- yeah. So, you know, starting out with like a meteorology degree and almost all the Mars rover drivers have like a PhD in robotics or computer science or something like that, that didn't really click to me as like a career path I could do. Um, I did other operational roles on the rover, but not like driving it, Um, taking pictures of those cameras, that sort of thing. Um, And it wasn't until a couple of years into operating one of the rover's opportunity, unfortunately, rest in peace, um, you know, but while she was still operating, one of the rover drivers at the time, uh, she, most importantly, she came up to me um, and said, hey, would you ever consider like learning how to drive the rovers? And I was like, what? You want me to drive? <laughs> um, and so they started out by learning what's called the downlink side. So all the data that comes back from the rover, it sends back, you know, it's temperatures, it's currents, like all that kind of engineering data. And so I had to learn how to analyze all of that, you know. Did the drive do what we thought it was going to do? Maybe it slipped a little bit more than we thought, you know, analyze all those kinds of things. So you get good at seeing, we told it to do this, but in reality, it did this. 
and getting that kind of intuition before turning around to learn how to actually make the commands to send to the rover. Um, and I was almost done training on opportunity when the dust storm hit and we lost contact um, and we lost the mission. Um, however, the Curiosity mission, so they have uh, formal classes where they'll get a, a class of four rover drivers and teach them all the stuff that they need to know. Um, and then, you know, bring in the next one about, you know, every year, year and a half, there's a new class. Well, we were still trying to recover opportunity at the time, and I was still one of the engineers involved in that. But Curiosity was about to have this new class of engineers. So they're like, hey, you want to come finish learning how to drive our rover instead? Because it's it's kind of the same. Like, it's the same suspension system. It's just a bigger rover. Um, the robotic arm, same kind of principles, different instruments. Um, all the rover drivers actually operate the robotic arm as well. So that's part of the reason it also takes so long is you're learning these two different systems. And so, um, you know, I started on that rover in October of 2018. Um, and I had been on opportunities learning how to drive that for the two years before that. So I, I had a lot of uh, knowledge going into it. And so, uh, yeah, I picked up, uh, you know, my official Mars rover uh, driver's license not too long ago, um, now finally. And, uh, you know, it's really scary because this is like the one role where you could really break something on the rover, right? And so that's why it takes so long to learn how to drive is you have to learn all these different things you have to keep in mind to keep the rover safe. Do you have a bumper sticker on your car that says my other car is a Mars rover? So I don't, but I know other people who do. <laughs> I, I know uh, someone who has a license plate frame that says my other car drives itself on Mars since he was really involved in the auto navigation part of the rover. Um, I know someone who has my other backup camera is on Mars. <laughs> I have, that's funny. I have two questions from what you just said. One, when a dust storm hits opportunity, why does it lay it out? Why can't y'all wait for the storm to pass and then go from there? Or did it get knocked over and just, you know, that kind of thing? And uh, I've already forgotten my second question. So let's answer that one. Go for the first one. Yeah. So for Opportunity, she was solar powered. And so the sun was like almost completely blocked out. Um, the... Um, in college, since I studied the weather on Mars, I actually studied what was called optical depth, which is basically a measurement of how much junk is in the atmosphere, whether it's clouds, dust, anything like that. Um, and she, as an opportunity, recorded the um, highest optical depth value we have ever seen on Mars. Um, the Viking missions actually back in the 70s saw a pretty nasty dust storm, um, but they were nuclear powered, so it didn't affect them too much. Um, but opportunity being solar powered when one in every couple hundred thousand photons reach the surface, uh, it's not really good for you. Um, and in fact, the, the tau value was so high, um, I actually got it tattooed on my arm as like a reminder <laughs> like for the rover. Uh, yeah, the, the final value she sent was tau of 10.8. And it's kind of a, a unitless number, but 10.8 is really bad. <laughs> That's kind of the emphasis. And so what we think happened was, um, she went into like a low power fault mode that ended up um, going into what's called a mission clock fault where she didn't know what time of day it was. And um, that just kind of messed up her whole schedule. And we also think on top of that, that this dust storm was so intense that it kicked up kind of larger dust particles that 
covered the solar panels. And so even if, you know, the sky is cleared and the computer was fine and everything like that, she just wasn't getting enough power to even boot up. When you're talking about billion dollar machinery, uh, doesn't it behoove you to send one of the other rovers to with a dustpan and you know and a little broom to clean her off I'm, in theory <laughs> yeah i mean in, the, in our particular case you know these missions were designed to last 90 days and that was based on um, the pathfinder mission from the 90s it actually had like a little dust collector and so it counted kind of how quickly dust accumulated on surfaces and so based on that measurement they said, well, if we sent a solar power mission, you know, when the solar arrays are this big, we expect it to last 90 days before too much dirt accumulates on the solar panels. Well, it turns out the area they sent these rovers to didn't deposit dust as quickly and they were windier. So even when they started getting some dust on the solar panels, the wind would actually come through and clean off the solar panels. Um, so they ended up lasting about 10 and 15 years, respectively, out of a 90 day mission. So I, I think We'll consider that pretty good. That is good. Um, it evens out. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, one of the common questions we get asked is, why didn't you include some sort of, like, dust cleaner or something like that? little Windex, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. So, you know, we're only constrained to send a certain amount of weight to Mars based on the rocket, right? And so to put something on there that could clean the solar panels, that would have meant one less scientific instrument that we could have sent, you know? And so at that trade, it's like, do we want more science or do we want to, you know, extend the mission some amount of time that we don't even know how long we could extend it? Um, Mars was pretty gracious to us anyway and, you know, kept things going. So um, clearly they wanted us to, to do more science. <laughs> I remembered my second question. When humans are operating these things and a human messes up, it's got to be catastrophic what happens to the human? Do they get taken out in the back and <laughs> hit with oranges or what happens? <laughs> we actually do uh, include a lot of thought in the rover, essentially. You know, um, it's called fault protection. It's it's a pretty extensive way. So even as a rover driver, if you try to drive it off a cliff, the rover is going to stop itself before it drives off that cliff. Um, it has a whole bunch of safety checks that it's doing along the way. Um so it's pretty hard to actually break something on the rover because we've we've tried to outsmart us. Uh, is it learning? Is it AI or are you teaching um, it? We we keep doing software upgrades ourselves. So it's not learning, but you know, we'll we'll add new capabilities. And there is some AI capabilities on the rover. Um, so there's a particular software suite called Aegis and at the end of a drive, you know, as the rover drivers, we don't know exactly where we are. Um, you know, we could have slipped a little bit, something like that. So we can't specifically target like rocks until we get the data. But with this Aegis software, it can actually analyze the rocks and we can send it parameters of like, try and get a rock that's, you know, maybe a little more this color or maybe more this shape or something like that. And it will actually do some science observations for us on that rock without humans in the loop. So the rovers are getting smarter. And are the people probably as well uh, <laughs> as are. Uh, when you're talking about billions and billions of dollars for something, I, I imagine there are people, I understand why, but I imagine there are people that think, huh, why? Why spend that kind of money for a place we're never going to go? Yeah. So, you know, I kind of see it as 
an investment in science and technology. Yes, you know, the average person is not going to care about the amount of magnesium that's in this rock, right? Like that's that's not something most people are going to be concerned about. But the science and technology to get to the point of having the Mars rovers has a huge impact here on Earth. There's been so much life-saving technology, especially in like the medical imaging field, that's been derived from the types of um, you know cameras and imaging that we do at NASA. And so, you know, yes, you know, the specifics of like science on Mars, sure, may not impact the, the general daily life, but that kind of investment in science and technology really comes back into the economy and really helps out people. So um, I, I wish it wasn't uh, ever framed as like a, why do this when we can do this instead? You know, I, I always get asked like, you know, there's poverty here on earth. Why don't we spend the money on that instead of on NASA? And I'm like, well, why can't we do both? <laughs> right? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I, I understand the ramifications of, of seeing what is going on because it speaks to what's going on here. You when you know what's happening on planets around us, it paints a better picture of what happened on Earth. And that's it's important to know our histories and where we might be going. Obviously, evolution sort of stopped, I guess, on Mars, but in a way. Uh, but it still holds some secrets. Is it possible that if we keep going the way we're going on Earth, <laughs> uh, that as we deplete our resources here, that other planets would be a source of re of minerals or there's a lot of uh interest um you know in asteroid mining where essentially you can you know capture an asteroid and mine it for resources uh, it never goes well in dystopian <laughs> novels but yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah but there are real companies actually looking into that and, and working on technologies for that um there's also you know I don't think it's impossible for humans to live on Mars. You know, I don't think it's going to happen in the next few years, you know, anything like that. Um, but it can happen. Um, so, you know, as, as the human race, you know, expands and, and goes out further, you know, I, I see Mars being a, stop, a stepping stone, especially now that we know it's got a lot more water than we thought it originally had. Yeah, which is such a trip. And now Venus, Venus has entered the, the party. Yes, <laughs> Venus has entered the chat. <laughs> <laughs> Which is cool. I love that. Yeah. Uh, let's get back to the fact that you are a woman in science and what you think about STEM and how important it is that you're a face for, especially at such a level, for other girls, young girls coming up. Yeah, so for me, I have actually had a relatively easy experience being a woman in STEM. I know a lot of women don't. Um, you know, I I had encouraging parents, I had really good teachers, all that kind of stuff. So I, I really lucked out in that department. And I, I realize how lucky I am. You know, I've heard plenty of, of stories from other women that I work with of the, the challenges they faced. Um, but um, you know, I certainly wish there had been someone, you know, more like me that I could have looked up to. Um, so that's kind of been my goal is be the role model I wish I had growing up. And so, you know, wear the feminine clothing and dresses and also turn around and, you know, do the hands-on engineering and 
all that kind of stuff. Um, and I really try and spend a lot of my free time talking to um, school kids um, or Girl Scout STEM camps or anything like that. Um, I really try and spend a lot of my time so that they can see, oh, wow, there's this like really cool woman in a floral dress talking about Mars rovers. Maybe I can do that. And that's, you, that's you build robots with kids. Is that correct? Yeah. So I actually uh, am like a huge Star Wars fan. So a while ago, I joined the R2D2 Builders Club and built my very own R2D2. And so I like to take that around to the schools as well. Um, so kids can see like a real robot. And, you know, the basics of robotics are the same at NASA and the R2 Builders Club, you know. Um, so I try and uh, bring some of those, you know, concepts to them and they can actually physically see it with the R2. So there are schematics for R2-D2. Did George Lucas do those or did somebody at a Boston Dynamics kind of come up with that situation? Yeah, so this was all done by, you know, the crew at uh, Lucasfilm and Industrial Lights and Magic. And um, they actually hired some of the R2-D2 builders from our club to work on the droids in the new movies. And so, you know, they got access to the old droids and were able to get the blueprints and all that kind of stuff. So oh, it's almost as accurate as you can be. Do you have it at your house? Do you get to have R2-D2 hanging <laughs> out? It's out my living room. <laughs> so cool. And it's fully operational. Yep. Drives around, beep boops, all that good stuff. How, beep boops. How long did it take you to build that? A little over two years. Whoa. It's definitely a labor of love. <laughs> Wow, that's incredible. I imagine there are a lot of working parts to that. Do you have a, a lot of parts. A favorite Star Wars character? Oh, my favorite character is Rey, hands down. Um, yeah. you know, certainly R2-D2 is up there um, and you know, was my favorite until Rey came along. Um, and I, I can't even really tell you what it specifically was about Rey since I started liking her before like the movie came out. Um, and I think what really ended up drawing me to her was that when she cares a lot about her friends and protecting them, which is something I'm, I'm very passionate about. And then also, you know, she's very technically minded, right? Like she's uh, self, uh, self-sufficient and good with computers and just kind of all that um, seemed to, to parallel. So, yeah. What would you say to parents of kids who may not have opportunities to go to things like space camp or even have teachers that really know how to encourage and allow those sorts of minds to flourish? What what can they do? Yeah, so I think really the greatest thing now is just there are so many internet resources now for, you know, how to do experiments at home or things to read, you know. The internet was still kind of just getting started when I was doing that. Um, so, you know, there's things like first robotics and all these other things that didn't really exist um, when I was going through, you know, that phase. So um, just be encouraging, um, you know, whatever they want to learn, let them learn. Um, that's one thing, um, you know, my, as I said, my parents had pulled me out of school for a year um, in the fifth grade. And, you know, sure, there's like the set curriculum of things you have to learn of, you know, history and whatever. But my mom was also very encouraging of let's learn about what you want to learn, too. So, you know, that was kind of fun of I could pick, you know, topics that I wanted to learn about and go in depth about as well. And that kind of balanced out the like, eh, I don't really I'm not a huge like history English buff, right? Um, so 
There are, and there's a lot of really great science museums in major cities. Obviously, right now, everything's sort of closed down, but some stuff is online. The U- YouTube is great for science experiments as well. There's all sorts of fun stuff on there. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of cool stuff out there now. What was the most interesting find or exciting find for you on Mars? So back in 2008, we had a lander called Phoenix that we sent, you know, vaguely close to the North Pole. And one of the cool things it discovered was it snows on Mars. Yeah, um, that was like mind blowing to me. Like, oh, my gosh, it's like snowing on Mars. It snows on Mars. I had no idea. Yeah, so they have uh, a water cycle. It's a bit different. Um, So liquid water is not stable, so it would never rain. But ice is stable and the water vapor is stable. And so it can actually snow at night on Mars. So we sent a LIDAR instrument. We could actually see the clouds form. And then you can see the ice particles just falling all the way to the surface in the LIDAR data. I love that. If you look really close, you can see Christmas lights. (laughs) 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 that's very cool do you have anything are you do you get anything that you get to keep that's martian rock or or is that all kept at labs and unknown it's probably a no-no i guess yeah um you know the most i'll get is like the little sign that sat at my desk at the end of the opportunity mission you know but um you know most of it is government property right yeah sure that makes sense (laughs) that makes sense if you could go to Mars, would you go knowing that there's no coming back seas? So for a while, I was interested in being an astronaut. But um, for a while, when I lived in Texas, I actually got to know several astronauts. And they would all talk about all the medical tests that they had to do. And I was like, maybe not, though. <laughs> I, I don't want to be poked and prodded for the rest of my life in, in very excruciating detail. So I was like, I'll let the robots go for me. <laughs> it was really interesting when they had the the Kellys, the twin brothers, and one was an astronaut, and they could do the test, the differences of the body in space versus not in space. That was really fascinating. Yeah. It's yeah, hard on the medical test. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I've read every once in a while, you see um, labs seeking people to behave as if they were in space zero gravity and all that knowing what yeah. i know <laughs> a friend that did that yeah um, where they like had her on a reclining table for like a month and i was like i don't want to do that either <laughs> i can't i mean i know it probably pays pretty well but that sounds awful <laughs> although maybe in quarantine it won't be so bad I mean, maybe. I mean, we're all laying around on the couch, lying around on the couch anyway. So, what's the difference, right? Yep. <laughs> it's just at an incline. Yep. <laughs> where are you headed in the program? Where do you see? Where do you see everything going in the next few years, personally and with the program? Yeah. So, personally, I have no idea what I'm going to do because uh, where do you go from Mars rover driver? Um, you know, I've certainly joked that, you know, I should be the next like director of the laboratory or something like that. But I don't know that if I want to go, you know, that route, I've, you know, that happiest I am is when I'm on shift to like planning Mars rover activities. So, you know, that's where I hope to stay is, is continuing to work in space missions. And then um, 
you know, for NASA in general, um, certainly for Mars, we're working on this Mars sample return. You know, how do we get those samples back? The Perseverance is going to make. Um, and I'm really hoping to see, you know, us return to outer planet exploration um, since a lot of our missions have recently um, you know, stopped working out there. You know, lived long lives, but, you know, their mission was done and we still have so many unanswered questions. Um, when you say outer planet, is that is that atmosphere you mean? What does outer planet mean? So like Jupiter and Saturn. Oh, I see. Outside of the planet itself. Got it. What do you think yeah. is next? Which planet are, do you have your eyes on? Oh, my gosh. Um, I don't know. I would really love to see us return to Uranus and Neptune because we only got that one flyby with Voyager. And... You know, it'll take a long time for a mission to get there, but I think we will learn so much by sending missions out there. So that's where I personally hope, uh, you know, we, we get to go. And I say this even as like someone who's really obsessed with Mars. It's like I would really love to learn more about the planets that, you know, haven't received as much attention. Yeah. How long did it, uh, does it take for a launch to get to Mars from Earth? So it takes usually seven to nine months. Um, so Perseverance uh, launched at the end of July, and it will land on February 18th. So, Would it take the same amount of time? This seems like a dumb question as I'm asking it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, if you were sending people, does the weight of the, of the vehicle that's, taking, that's going, does it make a difference of how long it takes, or is that inconsequential? For that, it would really depend on your rocket size. Um, so typically, missions to Mars only launch when Earth and Mars are at their closest, about every two years. And so that really dictates more the time it takes. Um, and um, you know, to launch humans, you need a lot of stuff. You know, It's not just the one-ton robot, but you have the humans and all the infrastructure and equipment, which is going to weigh a lot more than that. Um, so either you would need like multiple rocket launches or larger rockets or things like that. But um, yeah, the, the speed would be relatively the same um, for humans. Yeah. Mars is really showing off lately. I've seen her up there quite a bit these days. She's very bright. Very. <laughs> yep. Does that mean that we're in the closest spot then? Yeah. Yep. And that's why we just launched Perseverance, um, you know, a couple months ago. It's that time of, you know, uh, I'd say the year, but every other year. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. How can people find you if they have questions or maybe uh, are interested in some programs for kids or any of that kind of thing? How, how would they reach out to you? Yeah, so I'm pretty active on Twitter and Instagram as Planetary Carrie. I like the rhyme. <laughs> yeah, that is good. K-E-R-I for those listening. Yeah. Okay. I'll make sure that there's links uh, on heyhumanpodcast.com so that you are easy to access. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you. It's really interesting stuff. I'm curious if you could go back and talk to your little self. I mean, I imagine you would basically say, keep going, you're doing exactly the right thing, yeah? Yeah. Yep. It's really a life well lived. Yeah. I love it. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. 
Bye.